Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations in the World of Allergy podcast series will discuss the new atopic dermatitis practice parameters, and I'm hopeful that our conversation will be useful not only for healthcare professionals, but really anybody who lives with or knows someone with atopic dermatitis. There's going to be a, a wealth of information shared today, and we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Derek Chu to today's episode. Dr. Chu is an assistant professor of medicine at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Dr. Chu is a true expert in evidence-based medicine, great analysis, and systematic reviews. He's a member of the Joint Task Force on Practice Parameters for Allergy and Immunology and the lead author for the new atopic dermatitis practice parameters, which really makes him the ideal guest for today's topic. With that, Dr. Chu, thank you so much for taking time to join us and welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's a real pleasure to be here today. Yeah, I, I've personally been meaning to have you on for quite some time, so this is uh, this is going to be very rewarding for me, and I think this is a great topic. So uh, we'll get into it here. But before we do that, uh, it, I want to take a little bit of a, a little side turn here because this is fascinating to me. In 1991, the term evidence-based medicine was coined by Gordon Guyatt, who is still at your institution, McMaster University. You trained at and now work at the home of evidence-based medicine. What does that mean to you? I want to pay homage to uh, individuals before me that have helped develop the, the concept, Gordon and many, many others uh, around the world, including folks before Gordon, such as Dave Sackett, um, who did describe, helped describe in a, a previous BMJ paper, evidence-based medicine as the conscientious, explicit, and judicious use of current best evidence to make decisions. Um, in that context, when, we, when it was first written, it was about patients. But my own twist on it would be about using that current best evidence with patients to make a shared decision. The implications of this are uh, appraising the totality of the available evidence, addressing patient values and preferences in a shared decision-making paradigm, and using credible and trustworthy mechanisms to move that evidence to make that decision with them uh, or for populations uh, into what we would call optimal clinical practice and try to achieve optimal clinical outcomes. Yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating. And I didn't realize, I mean, it's relatively new, I guess, in some respects. But, you know, I did my uh, fellowship training at the Cleveland Clinic and David Lang was my um, my program director and mentor. I'll never forget during my training, this was, I don't know, 17, 18 years ago, he disappeared. And he went up to McMaster for a period of time. I don't know if it was like a, an EBM boot camp or something. And he came back. He changed everything. And just even the way we, we discussed, you know, Journal Club and things like that. It, it was, I'll never forget that. But yeah, I don't know what you guys did to him up there. But it was really <laughs> Yeah, and Davis is, is still a very strong proponent of EBM. Very grateful for his support. A lot of which he, he helped uh, sow the seed of what we're doing now when he was uh, not only president, but also as part of the JTF. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, you know, you personally, you've contributed to, I don't know, maybe more combined systematic reviews, clinical guidelines and parameters than anybody that I can think of, uh, at least in recent years in our specialty. Can you explain what this type of review entails and the rigor involved in evaluating the evidence? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, David. And, and again, you know, um, the work that we do up at McMaster is in, uh, in my group, the evidence analogy group, wouldn't really be, wouldn't be possible with, without all the great collaborators that we have around the world, our great students, and so many of the patient partners that we've been able to engage with that uh, have contributed to understanding not only the evidence, but also the patient perspective and how they interpret the same information. Um, and of course, our strong supporters at the Quadruple AI and the, and the, um, the college um, that have been supporters of the Joint Task Force. So systematic reviews and guidelines are two closely linked entities that each have their own set of standards. Systematic reviews at its core are about aiming to answer focused clinical questions um, and appraising that the best available evidence to inform um, those clinical actions and present them to readers or to users in easily digestible and usable formats. When there's multiple potential answers to a question, we then move on to um, systematic reviews that address comparative effectiveness and safety uh, in some statistical uh, measures we call that network meta-analysis, but there are some other techniques. And there are extensive uh, rigorous international standards that, uh, that have defined how to optimally do and report um, and interpret systematic reviews of the evidence. It means laying out things such as an explicit population of interest, intervention, comparator, outcomes, uh, timing of outcomes, as well as specific study designs for particular kinds of questions. Um, when we have that information, we then use that uh, systematic summary of available evidence to create actual recommendations. And that's what guidelines are about. Um, these are specific, systematically developed uh, recommendations to inform actions at specific patient scenarios. Uh, the problem, though, is that many guidelines and recommendations are formed uh, without systematic uh, structured approaches or, are, or have strong uh, conflicts of interest that may distort them or, or give the concern about distorting them, uh, or they may be created in non-transparent ways. Um, and so instead, what the JTF and what uh, GRADE then provides, along with trustworthy guideline standards, is ways of developing, developing the guidelines and a process that is clear, that is transparent, that is actionable, that is that uses the totality of evidence, and that incorporates a number of other facets, such as making sure that we incorporate the patient voice into guideline development uh, and minimize distortions such as potential conflicts of interest to translate into clear recommendations. Uh, in total, th that leads to very structured systematic summaries of the evidence, very structured guideline development processes. And a lot of this could be elaborated upon much more in detail, but we've published also about this in, in two small pieces that I'm happy to share um, in Jackie in practice about how to actually use these systematic summaries and also how do we create trustworthy guidelines. 
Yeah, I, I appreciate your your background on that. I, for our listeners, there's a lot that goes into this. And as Dr. Chu mentioned, I mean, they really do try to um, make this as, you know, focus on the evidence, not opinions and not experiences and anecdotes and things like that. And for those who are interested, we're going to link to the fully topic dermatitis parameters, but all the practice parameters at the beginning actually go through and they describe exactly the process entailed. So you can read for yourself uh, and there's a lot that goes into it. Now you've mentioned um, the grade approach and we've discussed this on earlier podcasts. It's been quite some time. Uh, it's still to me, I think this confuses a lot of folks. Can you just give us a, a brief refresher as to what grade is and how it differs from more traditional types of practice parameters? Absolutely. So grade, uh, grade is a system that helps appraise and uh, define the certainty of available evidence when used in systematic reviews. Uh, that means classifying the certainty of evidence for, say, effect estimates of an intervention as high, moderate, low, or very low in context of a specific threshold, such as an effect, no effect. Uh, but for guidelines, GRADE then provides a very structured framework about how to translate the evidence into uh, actionable clinical recommendations, such as consideration of factors of benefits and harms, patient values and preferences, contextual factors such as accessibility, equity, feasibility, uh, implementation uh, concerns, and then clear uh, decision about what the weight of all these factors would be, not only the benefits and harms, but it's also its implications and burdens and so on, uh, into whether we have a recommendation for a course of action, against a course of action, if that should be for almost everyone, in other words, what we would call a strong recommendation, or if it should be made more of a shared decision-making paradigm on a case-by-case -case basis, which should be what we call conditional recommendations for or conditional recommendations against. All right. So, it, yeah, I, I think it's a great sort of um, explanation of this. And for those, you have to kind of read through these different documents to see the, the differences. But uh, I, I consider GRADE a little bit more sort of clinically applicable and user-friendly in some ways. Um, but there's a whole other discussion that goes on for that. Well, let's get it. Let's move on to the, the current practice parameter. Can you just give us some background as to how this um, atopic dermatitis parameter was developed? Yeah, so uh, the atopic dermatitis parameter was prioritized for, for many reasons. The membership actually, uh, in, in some of our internal feedback, prioritized it as uh, a need to address. Uh, number two, there was many new medications uh, that were coming out being available or treatment options becoming available. There's important new evidence since the last update in 2012. We had never done a grade parameter. Um, and uh, the quadruple I and the and the, the college had officially just endorsed grade. And so uh, not only were these the case, but also there was a systematic review completed of available clinical practice guidelines that showed a crisis of incredibility of existing guidelines because they had not fully fulfilled all the trustworthy standards or in particular incorporated the patient perspective. And so the JTF then appointed Dr. Schneider, Dr. Linda Schneider, uh, and I as co-chairs, and we set out to address all the trustworthy guideline standards laid out by the Institute of Medicine, now called the National Academies of Medicine, and other groups such as the McMaster and Guidelines International Network uh, groups. And we addressed five main topics, topical treatments, uh, dilute bleach baths, dietary 
elimination, allergen immunotherapy, and systemic treatments, including phototherapy. Uh, we instituted a number of mechanisms to mitigate conflict of interest. We published a priori, our general approach to how we would develop the guideline. Uh, we also published independent systematic reviews, all, all uh, driven by the evidence analogy group, addressing each one of these individual topics. Uh, and we also published an independent systematic review addressing the appraisal of patient values and preferences regarding treatments, the first ever that we, that we know of. Um, in addition to that, we incorporated the patient voice not only through uh, having a large 23 patient and family um, council, but also incorporating them, a number of these individuals, into the guideline development efforts and working with organizations such as the National Eczema Net, uh, Association as well as Global Parents for Eczema Research. And then we held, subsequent to this, several structured uh, guideline panel meetings to, uh, to develop the recommendations with not only uh, eczema experts, such as dermatology and allergy, but also primary care clinicians. We had nurses as part of our team, we had psychologists, uh, pharmacists, and like I said, patient and family partners. After we developed these recommendations and drafted them, we internally reviewed them and submitted them through three separate rounds of peer review. The first to the JTF, the second to eight appointed clinical methodologic experts that the quadruple AI and the American College identified, and then also for public review. After all these, uh, we have our end product now, which are, were just posted online. That is uh, a lot of work. How how long did this take from you know initial conception to you know getting going online? I think we started the conceiving the idea in late 2020, and then really started the work in 2021. Wow. Okay. Well, that'll get you through a pandemic, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So for for our listeners, uh, a little more involved than just kind of, you know, going onto Google and saying, um, you know, what is atopic dermatitis? <laughs> so uh, this is a, a very comprehensive document. I encourage everybody to go through it in your own time. I think Dr. Chu's going to offer us great perspective to kind of walk through it. Uh, there's great background and explanations for various recommendations and consensus-based statements throughout. How do you think clinicians should read through or utilize these parameters? Should they sit down start to finish? Uh, should they sort of uh, go to it whenever certain questions arise based upon patient care? What, what advice do you have? You know, I, I think about when uh, going back uh, myself, how I learned, um, I think I think it's a mix. Some of it's mm -hmm. going to be that on demand in the moment needing to find new information or reviewing, you know, for instance, right after a case that you've seen and going back to, to check. But I think there's something to be said about having a sit down and getting through whether that be the whole thing or specific aspects of it each day to to understand it from front to back. But the main thing is that uh, we've tried to create aspects so that it's their actionable units or chunks that people can take away and be digested individually uh, and where appropriate have links to other places so that you know what else is related to it in the moment. Uh, but that first aspect is that infographic. That's supposed to be a rapid takeaway that people can use. You can print out. It's, it's scalable. It should be a vector format in the PDF, so it can become a poster, can become a handout, can become something that you keep on your desktop, for instance, and switch back and forth 
while you're seeing a patient, you can even show it to them, that kind of thing. Uh, but in addition, when you want to take that deep dive into the information, each recommendation is structured. So it'll have that specific recommendation. It'll have a summary of the key conditions to consider for or against that course of action to see, does this apply to your patient? Does the recommendation, is it likely going to be aligned with their values and preferences or not? And then things such as the, uh, the, the hard evidence about benefits and harms and how certain we are, the patient values and preferences that we assumed based off of our systematic review and our discussion among focus groups and individual patients on our guideline panel, the uh, contextual factors, those things that we might consider about resource implications, about accessibility, feasibility, and key implementation considerations, both within that main text. And there are other practical issues that you can see in the supplement that can be used also as a handout or discussion piece that you even have printed ahead of time or give to your patient ahead of time when they're thinking about key treatment options. There are also key comparative effectiveness tables of all the major topicals and systemics that again, you can keep on hand on your poster, on your desktop, um, or on a device to use as a rapid resource to either uh, remind or as a shared decision discussion point. I think those are gonna be some of those features that can be used not only on demand, but also as people go through and understand the rationale behind the decisions and then bring that back case by case to decide with the patient uh, and navigate them. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's beautiful uh, to be honest with you. Like the infographic and the way it's structured, it's uh, I, know, I mean, kind of nerding out here, but it's it's really well done and very thoughtful and user friendly. Uh, I agree with you. I think it's helpful to kind of go through it start to finish. Maybe not take a deep dive on on everything, but at least you know what's in there. Then when those questions do arise, you can go back and and say, oh yes, this document actually contains information on that. So I couldn't agree more. I think that's a great way to do it. You just gave us great sort of context as to how people should um, read through the 25 specific recommendations throughout the document. There's really a lot that goes into it. It's not a black or white. This is always this is how you should do it every single time. It's very much like here are things to consider both for and against. Um, let's get into just atopic dermatitis. Can you just describe for us the typical symptoms, the clinical course, the prevalence, the burden of disease, you know, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So Atopic dermatitis is the most common chronic uh, skin inflammatory disease, and it's characterized by intense itch and then subsequent prominent skin inflammation, uh, as well as, as many of us know, multiple allergic comorbidities, but also there are a number of non-allergic comorbidities, uh, particularly over the long course that, that we're beginning to appreciate more. And ultimately, this has a massive uh, and negative impact on patients and their families, their, their caregivers. Um, in terms of quality of life. It usually starts in infancy, um, and about a quarter will persist into adulthood by, by most recent estimates. Uh, but when it's especially uh, problematic, when it's moderate to severe, because then it can have a substantial financial burden for individuals, there's obviously impact uh, and exacerbation on disparities uh, of, in healthcare. And beyond that, when it's... Uh, when it is this severe, estimates are that it can take about 20 hours on average just to manage. And that That's like taking on another uh, job for oneself, but also for caregivers in order to, to care for their child. And so um, 
a number of individuals have left the workforce. Uh, there are reports of groups such as the NEA and, and GEPR have, have done that have shown that number of individuals leave the workforce just to help manage this condition. It's relentless. Yeah, I, that's a, it's great background for everybody. It really, it, it can take over your life, especially for those with truly severe atopic dermatitis. It, I don't know about you, but I, I receive referrals all the time or, or people just ask me, they want to know the exact cause of their, their or their child's atopic dermatitis. So Dr. Chu, can you help us understand what causes atopic dermatitis? Yeah, Dave, I, you know, so, so I'm, I'm also an allergist uh, and I see, all, I see uh, folks like this all the time as well. Um, but you know, actually, I sometimes they think this might be a trick question and not, not intentionally in one part, when I, when I talk to patients and families, they may be interested in the pathogenesis and its immunology. So, so my background, my PhD, uh, I've spent many, many hours at the bench side with mice and cells and flow cytometry and all these kinds of things and doing analysis. But I suspect that while some might be interested in that aspect, many of them are interested in why does this keep coming back? Mm. And so they might be more interested in how do I gain control of this rather than uh, what is the root cause? They, they might be interested in that. Uh, but I think many, and I think addressing that might be part of the answer to this common question and, and walking patients through and saying, excellent, excellent question. I'm going to tell you how to get control of this. And this is what is going to keep it from coming back. But at its core, in terms of the, the basic science, there it's well recognized now that atopic dermatitis is a complex and multifactorial disease, multifactorial, uh, disease that not only involves intrinsic aspects, such as uh, genetics that can predispose to dehydration, or loss of barrier function in genes such as filaggrin and others that can lead to uh, transepidermal water loss and uh, an altered immune response, but also other aspects such as microbe, uh, in microbial interaction. And we're still learning a lot about uh, which exact microbes are friendly versus harmful. A third aspect is that dysregulated immune response uh, some of which we've learned from uh, many patients that we see, perhaps, in terms of inborn areas of immunity. Uh, and then a fourth aspect, which is interaction with the environment, such as toxins, irritants, or allergens. And these interplaying factors probably contribute to why that skin inflammation happens. But the origins of the inflammation, I think, are still yet to have a definitive answer. Yeah, uh, you know, you could have just said like milk or something easy like yeah. that, but instead, uh, yeah. <laughs> right. I I recently had the privilege of um, talking about this topic with a group of um, primary care pediatricians, and I put this slide up that showed all the the barrier defects and then the complex immunopathology, uh, the the impact of the nervous system. It, their 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 eyes were just like, what? And I was like, that's the cause of atopic dermatitis. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's so complex. Well, you sort of touched upon this a bit, but um, can you tell us a little bit more about how ethnic diversity and different skin tone or color can impact atopic dermatitis? This was addressed in the document as well. Yeah, this is so. This is a a major focus um, of the our guidelines is uh, equity, diversity, and inclusiveness. And I think there's a number of different aspects that go into this. But the first is that 
much of medicine historically has been race-based medicine, which has significant limitations in how we approach patients because race is a social construct. It's a, a construct that we apply to patients rather than a reflection of what their biologic ancestry actually is, which is what we might actually be interested in in trying to understand how do genetic differences, which might affect how we look, Im impact how the disease presents. But secondly, it clearly has had significant social implications and implications for uh, disparities in access and optimal care. Indeed, there's uh, estimates that we describe in uh, the guideline about how race-based approaches to medicine have led individuals that uh, have been classified as African-American to present more to the emergency room for essentially primary care rather than a specialist or, um, or even their primary care physician for eczema care. And this is highly problematic, not only from a resource perspective, but also from accessing optimal care because we all know going to the emergency room uh, is a completely different context. The physicians there are, are strapped for their own resources and they're focused on trying to address immediate problems. Uh, and people do need a transition to long-term management plans rather than, for instance, repeated bursts of systemic corticosteroids and their uh, consequent challenges. But beyond that, a massive problem has been ignoring uh, the voice of patients in uh, the, their, their individual care and their right to self-determination. And so that's why we've addressed incorporating the patient voice throughout the guideline. And thirdly, uh, a major problem has been incorporating Indigenous health. There is, for instance, in Canada, only one Indigenous dermatologist. And that's mm -hmm. why we specifically incorporated them in the guideline. And if you look at, for instance, statistics in Canada, when you actually ask Indigenous uh, communities to rank their highest priority health problems, skin disease, especially atopic dermatitis, is among the top, the top diseases, but it's ignored by other headlines, such as cardiovascular disease, metabolic disease. And so people don't appreciate, it seems, that skin health eczema can lead to many complications such as infections and so on that can be crippling uh and so again that's why we set out to address edi in many facets uh in this guideline mm. and you know as we get into the the treatment guidance that's offered throughout and i i really encourage all the listeners um go read for yourself look at this amazing infographic at the very top of the infographic before we even discuss treatment options and recommendations uh there's a focus on five different areas and can you please explain why it's important to really uh first ensure the proper diagnosis that we provide patient education we avoid triggers we adhere to therapy and then moisturize, 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 moisturize. They seem like, you know, five pretty important things to clarify. What's the scoop on that? Yeah. So, uh, so we felt it critical to really make sure that we don't get into this, this common habit in medicine that we have is about, we see a patient and just move on to the next advanced therapy and, and yeah. escalate and escalate and escalate and escalate and escalate. But as always, that, that adage is, you know, right treatment, right patient, right diagnosis. Uh, when we're, <laughs> we're doing anything from, seeing the patient in front of us to collecting a sample to, you know, any other aspect of medicine. And so uh, eczema can be tricky. Um, there, there are mimics and that those mimics can change with time. And so not only do you have to get, make sure you've got the right diagnosis and we provide some of the criteria that are used commonly to diagnose atopic derm, but also we provide some of the, some common mimics to think about. In infancy, you might be thinking about 
seborrheic dermatitis, irritant dermatitis. You also throughout need to be thinking about complicating diagnoses, not only uh, aspects such as allergic contact dermatitis or again, irritant dermatitis, but other ones, including uh, CTs, like localized lymphomas or malignancies. And so uh, there are a number of uh, dermatitic presentations that can be atopic dermatitis or can be other forms of eczema. So that's why we, we also try to nuance the language to be that eczema, while we use it in common language, the most commonly to refer to as atopic dermatitis, and in its actuality, it's a morphologic description and you have to keep your mind open. So keep the diagnosis, make sure you think and think again about the diagnosis and complicating diagnoses. Number two, treatment's not going to work and patient's not going to use it. So mm-hmm. you have to make sure that the patient is using it, but not only that it's uh, a one-way street that they're using it, but that they're adequately supported in, in how to actually use it optimally. So many patients, when you talk to them about how to start a therapy, you know, I'm going to start you on this intense potent steroid and then transition you to something more mild to use long-term to keep you under control, can find that concept difficult because it's a lot of information taken all at once. And so written action plans might be one way to be more clear in how we communicate or frequent checking in. Third is, if you're gonna treat someone, it's gonna be hard if you're swimming upstream. And so again, avoiding those triggers, limiting things such as uh, harsh soaps, fragrances, such as other known triggers such as allergens or others that that people find, and therefore uh, you're not, like I said, swimming upstream making sure that they at least have that foundational therapy of moisturize, moisturize, moisturize. Uh, as mentioned earlier, people with atopic derm have a tendency to xerosis and therefore to dry out, and that will exag- exaggerate and, and promote the skin inflammation. So it's key to uh, promote barrier function and moisturization. Mm-hmm. And, and this is very. This should be familiar to folks. Uh, if you follow the NHLBI asthma guidelines for the last 16 years, if you look at those wonderful charts about how to step up therapy, on the far right has always been before you increase therapy, assess adherence, assess for comorbid conditions, look at environmental exposures, things like that. So the same rules apply for this, uh, and it, it's it's a very important concept. Well, what can you tell us about different levels of severity for those with atopic dermatitis? Does this vary within the same individual over time? If so, you know how does the Severity impact decisions regarding treatment options. Yeah, so a top great great point. Severity can change with time uh, with individuals, and the most classic way that we determine severity is a snapshot uh, in terms of uh, how does the skin look, how extensive is it involved, but also when we look at individual sites, how intense is it? Such as, is it the intensity of the erythema, the intensity of population around it? of secondary changes such as lichenification, excoriation. And so throughout the document, how we typically refer to as severity, but as you're mentioning, Dave, this doesn't completely accord with other uh, aspects in, in allergic disease where we typically think about severity as the intensity of therapy to gain and maintain control, such as an asthma. And so we're trying to address that disconnect, and we, we talk about it in the research recommendations section, but just bear in mind that most of the time when people talk about eczema severity, they're actually talking about that snapshot in the moment assessment. Okay. 
Um, you, you talked about moisturizers, and there's a specific recommendation in the document that uh, addresses prescription moisturizers. Uh, are these superior to, you know, things you can get over the counter? Yeah, so prescription moisturizers, things like Epicerum and Topiclair and a number of others are, are um, actually marketed as a prescription device in, mm. in America. And so they're, they actually go through a different regulatory process. The bottom line is that um, when we systematically reviewed the available evidence, over 40,000 patients that we checked in over 200 randomized trials, we actually found that prescription moisturizers came very modestly better in only one outcome, one patient for an outcome, uh, better compared to non-prescription moisturizers. There are other problems, uh, such as they often come in smaller tubes, at least from experience, patients have described to us, uh, a number of partners said that they, that they have different odors uh, and that individuals may have quite a preference to their odors when they use um, different moisturizers. And so given the balance between uh, things such as a very modest improvement in eczema severity, one that may not even be patient important, uh, the fact that it might be more expensive to access more challenging to access, harder to access, and the tube size would often be much smaller, we suggested for individuals to stick with bland over-the-counter moisturizers in most scenarios, a conditional recommendation for that, as opposed to prescription moisturizers. Now, let's say somebody is, is following the, the five critical steps and they're applying moisturizer consistently, avoiding triggers and things like that, uh, yet they still continue to have active patches of atopic dermatitis or, or severe atopic dermatitis. What are the recommendations regarding the use of topical corticosteroids? Yeah, so topical corticosteroids are, are one of our oldest uh, tools in the toolbox. And what we found in the systematic review network meta-analysis was a gradient of, of potencies available. We provide a slightly different framework than your traditional TCS uh, 1 to 7 class that we're most familiar with. But at the end of the day, strong evidence of efficacy, little to no harms when used judiciously rather than in a, uh, a prolonged high potency manner. And that uh, most patients found them acceptable and easy to access. Um, and uh, they, they did yield the desired effect in many patients, and therefore we provide a strong recommendation to use these types of treatments to address individuals that were refractory to moisturization alone. And I guess this leads to the next question because there's a lot of sort of steroid phobia out there. And as you mentioned at the beginning, there are multiple non-steroid treatment options now available. So are there other anti-inflammatory options that can be considered for use in treating atopic dermatitis? Absolutely. So topical calcineur inhibitors are the next best one um, that uh, we've looked at. Among them, it appears that topical uh, tacrolimus 0.1% would probably be among the most potent, though because of how it's most commonly used among those that are older, there is the topical tacrolimus 0.03% and the pemercolimus, but both of these are, uh, are going to be less potent or less effective across multiple patient foreign outcomes. But they can be effective for uh, uh, helpful for maintenance therapies to help limit the potential for side effects such as atrophy or petechiae or skin thinning that people are worried about uh, with uh, long-term chronic use of uh, high potency topical steroids. The downside though is again, the tube size is gonna tend to be smaller. In addition, they can be more expensive. They can also have more likely to have a sensation of stinging or burning 
which we provide some tips about how you might be able to address. And there, there are still yet others. Those that, that ranked uh, or were classified similar in potency in the lower group, such as between tuple corticosteroid class in the range of five to seven in that range, fell things, uh, the lowest being crisalbarol, and then uh, intermediate being topical ruxolitinib. But uh, these were some of the non-steroidal uh, options. One thing that is very key about the topical calcium neuron inhibitors, however, is that we did uh, address its uh, safety profile in a dedicated systematic review addressing safety, and we found no increase in lymphoma or cancer in that uh, respect. And therefore, among its typical usage, we should re be able to reassure patients as no important increase in, uh, in promoting cancer. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and, you know, for our listeners, please uh, go read this for yourself. There's great information regarding all these different uh, treatment options throughout the parameter uh, and really some, some good guidance as well. In general, how often should topical anti-inflammatory medications be applied? Yes. Yeah, so as part of the topical treatment systematic review and network meta-analysis, we looked at all those comparisons between twice a day or more and once a day. And actually, twice a day had a slight edge, about uh, about a 10% or better uh, relative improvement to improve eczema. That being said, if you do if you use twice a day or more for uh, moderate potency topical treatments, that is to say, tacrolimus or moderate potency steroids, um, you you can get away with once a day. Uh, if you use twice a day, you're going to end up using more medication, potentially more uh, side effects. Uh, although, again, that's more so with intense chronic long-term use, but also that you're going to, you know, you're going to have to get refills faster. You're going to go through your tube size. That also has other resource implications. And so we made a conditional recommendation for once a day over twice a day. This leaves the flexibility that if patients want to self-titrate, they can. They've got a refractory lesion. They've got something important coming up. They can switch from once a day to twice a day. But in most cases, when they're going after and trying to resolve that new flare, they can use once a day and be confident that it'll address the issue. And then if there's something that they need to switch over to twice a day for, then they can switch over to that. I love the flexibility that's included throughout. Um, it, it's just so user-friendly and practical. Uh, what, you know, I've heard, I don't know, 50 different recommendations about how to put these topical medications on the skin. What, does the, what, did, the doc, uh, what did the parameters say about use of occlusive applications when applying medication to the skin for atopic dermatitis? Yeah, so occlusive application or wet, most commonly wet wrap therapy is a bit of a, more of a specialty technique. Uh, our colleagues at National Jewish were very uh, helpful in providing their protocol and recipe uh, for this. But for individuals that have had localized lesions, refractory to already uh, mid to high potency topical steroids for quite some time, we suggested, yes, uh, a conditional recommendation for trying a very time limited and limited uh, body service area limited trial of wet wrap therapy. Because uh, even though the randomized trial evidence is very weak, there is very strong uh, uh, experience from both patients as well as clinicians that it can be effective. It does require a lot of support to at least become, get over that hurdle of becoming confident in how to do it effectively and safely. And it is possible to implement using household items uh, as well as 
their individual topical corticosteroids. But very importantly, uh, and especially in the E appendix, we list a number of details, including being very careful and probably requiring quite a bit of specialist in-person support by nursing and clinicians about anything to do with the face or sensitive areas. It requires this startup with this training aspect, uh, at least to get familiar with how to do peripheral sites, but anything sensitive, especially around the head and neck, the face, would probably at least require some dedicated in-person in -person training uh, to be especially careful and confident. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, anytime we're involving the skin, especially scratching and potentially, you know, breaking through the skin barrier, we worry about uh, infection, of course. Uh, so what do the parameters say about the use of topical antibiotics in treating atopic dermatitis? Is this beneficial? Uh, and if so, when, they, when should they be considered? Yeah, so uh, for in most scenarios, when the skin is minimally infected, as in maybe there's some minor crusting, very minor uh, oozing, but no systemic symptoms, I'm talking fever, constitutional symptoms, patients unwell or has meet SERS criteria, you know, in most of those scenarios, topical antimicrobials are not going to be effective. The, the systematic network analysis showed little to no added benefit, albeit the certainty of the evidence was low for multiple critical patient foreign outcomes. And so instead, in the balance between benefits and harms, making sure that the patient is able to avoid problems such as antimicrobial resistance, we made a conditional recommendation against using topical antimicrobials in those without clearly infected skin. Uh, in most scenarios, essentially, this will not add and could actually promote harm, uh, not only for the patient, but society as a whole. Okay. And this kind of goes hand in hand in, in some respects. Tell us about bleach baths and when should they be used for treating atopic dermatitis? Yeah, dilute bleach baths have had um, quite, a, quite a history. Mm -hmm. uh, there were some re early reviews uh, among members of our team that suggested the uncertainty about whether or not it was effective. Uh, we were able to update that systematic review. We were also able to retrieve unpublished data from a number of investigators and incorporate that. So that review is actually published in, the, in annals, and it shows that uh, bleach baths can cut eczema severity by a modest amount in the range of 15, 20% relative risk uh, of reduction in terms of the severity of, of eczema. But the issue at hand is that it likely is gonna be relative. And so if people are more moderate to severe to start with, they might have something to gain in terms of an important change in their eczema severity but in individuals that are already mild to begin with, they may derive little to no added benefit. And so uh, because it takes time to do, because people will have varied opinions and very varied preferences about going through this process uh, of using dilute bleach baths, we made a conditional recommendation for it among those with moderate to severe disease uh, that is refractory to topical treatments and a conditional recommendation against it in those with mild disease. So a great example of how the disease severity can influence the treatment decisions and, and approaches. Um, what about those individuals who just have flares of their atopic dermatitis in that same location on their body over and over and over again? They're relatively spared overall, but they just have that one spot that keeps coming back. Are there circumstances where they can use um, you know, these anti-inflammatory medications on normal appearing skin to try and prevent those flares from occurring? Yeah, absolutely. So there's this concept of proactive therapy or in other words, 
intermittent therapy to help reduce the risk of the next flare. And so the topical treatments network analysis showed that we cut that in about half using any one of the mid to low potency steroids or topical calcineurin inhibitors. And so the concept is get control of the disease by using the medication once or twice daily. And then after that, you need to address not only the superficial changes, but some of the subclinical ones by continuing to treat for an additional three to seven days. Once that's done, you can then transition to the second phase, which is preventing the next flare. In that phase, apply the treatment two to three times per week, often consecutive, such as weekend therapy, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, for instance, if that works for the patient, to prevent the next flare from occurring. And uh, if there's a flare, revert back to every single day. If there's no flare, you can use this, uh, say, weekend-type therapy to prevent the next from occurring. We made a conditional recommendation, sorry, a strong recommendation for use of proactive therapy in those with relapsing disease. Okay. Well, you know, we're, what, 40 minutes in or so to our yeah. conversation, and we haven't even talked about uh, diet yet, so here we go. Uh, yeah. You know, you and I both meet caregivers uh, who are routinely advised uh, to take food out of their child's diet to treat their atopic dermatitis, or, or poor mothers who are told to stop eating certain foods when they're breastfeeding. And yet, in these parameters, there is a recommendation that specifically recommends against the use of these elimination diets. I, I would love for you to expand upon that. Can you please offer some explanation for us? Yeah, so elimination diets, um, uh, patients are commonly are concerned that the food is contributing to their disease. And I think like we were saying before, often the question that they start off with articulating is what is causing this? But more so, they're not only asked, they may at some aspect be talking about pathogenesis, but more so they're struggling with gaining control. It keeps on coming back after I finish using your cream. And so what, what, what they need is some guidance about how to not only gain control, but then how to keep it. And elimination diets uh, are problematic for many reasons. From an allergist perspective, we have a lot of more appreciation now that avoiding foods for a long period of time early in life is likely to promote food allergy, the IgE-mediated food allergies that we worry about. And training one disease and gaining any minor and potentially small benefits for one disease, eczema, or acquiring another one that could be life-threatening is a big problem and it's a huge burden. When we did the systematic review, the randomized trial sh showed that there might be, if anything, a very modest, modest benefit to avoiding foods, that testing had no added benefit whatsoever, so patients should not be undergoing screening tests or skin tests in any way to inform how to eliminate diets in any way. And instead, we uh, found it quite burdensome for patients to go through all the rigmarole of avoiding allergens, not seeing the skin get any better necessarily. And so we made a conditional recommendation against. The key thing though, is if patients are adamant to pursue this, we should engage them in that discussion. We should have close follow-up. And we, I would encourage a concept that another one that Gordon uh, guide helped promote is this concept of N of one trials. Hmm. So N of one trials mean that you and the patient agree to make an objective assessment at the very beginning. You then, they then go through their diet that they choose for say a week, a two weeks at most, and then return back to the other one. So take the food out one or two weeks, then uh, measure again, put the food back in one or two weeks and so on and so forth, 
And if you do that cycle three times, then you can actually find, is there a clear pattern? Patients going through this will then understand that test is much more informative to understand whether that food is truly causal rather than some other tests, such as blood testing or skin mm-hmm. testing, skin prick testing or others. And I found that I've found that very effective so far. I, th- I think that's a great approach. You're right, because we don't have all the answers. And as, as the parameters write out, there are preferences. There's, you know, uh, pros and cons to every approach that we do. So if somebody is adamant, we can help them engage in that conversation. That's I think that's great advice. Thank you. Uh, you know, you mentioned earlier the, the common comorbid conditions with atopic dermatitis, especially people who develop uh, go on to develop environmental allergies. And we know that allergen immunotherapy can be very useful uh, for those who have, um, you know, long-term nasal and respiratory symptoms. Can it help those with atopic dermatitis as well? Yeah, this was a controversial area before, but there had never been a robust systematic review of randomized trials addressing allergen immunotherapy for atopic derm. So that one's published in Jackie. Um, the bottom line is that the benefits seem to cut uh, eczema severity by about a third, uh, or you can look at it, there's other ways of presenting the same information. And especially for those with comorbid disease, upper airway, lower airway, rhinitis, or asthma, we would anticipate the same benefits uh, that we already know of. Um, and so the harms that we saw were primarily those that were already well-recognized by subcutaneous or sublingual immunotherapy. Generally well-tolerated subcutaneous immunotherapy runs that slightly higher risk of systemic reactions, which you have to be particularly careful about and make a shared decision with your patient about. Both of them have significant burdens in terms of using medication every day or coming for injections. Uh, and so we made a conditional recommendation for those with moderate severe disease for this treatment uh, that's refractory to topical treatments. And for those with more mild disease, we made a conditional recommendation again. But a key consideration is that if they have, say, mild atopic derm, but they've got more severe allergic rhinitis and asthma, they actually might be quite keen to pursue it. And so it is, again, an individualized discussion. Mm-hmm. No, and it's treating the whole patient, not just one part of the patient. Uh, that's great. And, you know, I think for this part, we will direct our listeners to the practice parameters for a complete and thorough explanation surrounding biologics and other systemic uh, treatment options. But can you just uh, summarize when options such as dupilumab or some of the newer JAK inhibitors should be considered for treatment? Absolutely. So dupilumab and trilokinumab are already available. They're licensed. There's different age groups. We made a strong recommendation given the balance of benefits and harms uh, for these. They are not going to be the top top of the line in terms of the most effective, but they will have a very good safety profile. They do have challenges in terms of access, in terms of making sure that insurers will uh, access it. But a key aspect that we include is that patients should not have to uh, go through trials of more dangerous or harmful therapies with less certainty for benefit, such as cyclosporin, methotrexate, mycophenolate, azathioprine or UV therapy just to be eligible for dupilumab or mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, another thing that you and I see quite a bit, and you mentioned about how when people go to the emergency room, for instance, uh, to manage chronic conditions such as atopic dermatitis, maybe they're not given the most up-to-date you know, treatment. And one of those would be the use of oral or systemic corticosteroids, uh, especially when people have acute flares of the atopic dermatitis. Uh, the parameter specifically recommends against this practice for all patients uh, with atopic dermatitis. Why is that? The bottom line is uh, that these treatments, while they can be immediately effective, are a band-aid solution and 
uh, frequently people relapse or flare right after discontinuation. And so the issue is that people can go into this repetitive cycle of repeat bursts of high-dose corticosteroids, which can have massive and life-changing compl complications and consequences for patients. Instead, creating a plan um, to transition patients to stable and effective and safe long-term maintenance therapies is what's required. And so that's, again, where not only do we have the other recommendations in place for topical treatments and some of those initial systemic treatments, but for those refractory, even to systemic treatments such as dupilumab and tralokinumab, we've advanced therapies such as the oral JAK inhibitors, which we made a conditional recommendation for a number of them for things like cyclosporin and for specialist cases where people are very familiar with their use, there might be other considerations for therapies such as methotrexate. Of course, if light therapy is easily accessible to people, we also su suggested for that. Okay. We've covered a lot of ground, and I know this is going to be extremely helpful for uh, a lot of folks listening as they sort of read and digest the new parameters. Did we miss anything Anything big in your mind? No, nothing Nothing big. The, uh, the as, as we talked about, read through the entire parameter. There are key aspects that infographic to begin with to get that quick snapshot summary. There are research implications for those engaged in research, and uh, I think a number of important implications for the future. Uh, these guidelines will be living guidelines, and so we will periodically update them. The e-appendix has a lot of information. They're designed to be one to two page handouts that can be double-sided uh, to address practical issues for each intervention. That's great. You know, Dr. Chu, you, you personally publish and contribute to so many systematic reviews and clinical guidelines as we talked about. What advice do you have for clinicians who simply don't have the time to stay up to date with the evolving evidence or can't quite figure out how to implement it into their practice? Yeah, it's, it's a rapidly evolving field. At the top of it is going to be these guidelines that, are, that use trustworthy processes that take all those systematic summaries of the evidence and put them into one area and provide you the context as to how to determine clinical action. Reviews by themselves, individual trials by themselves can be highly impactful, but can be hard to uh, stay up to date in terms of uh, making sure you not only understand the evidence that it's been appraised in a systematic way and that it's been then fed into the rest of the totality of the evidence and decided with patients and understanding the context those contextual factors, acceptability, equity, feasibility, and so on, about what the course of action should be. And so that's why I think guidelines are a critical source, but they have to be trustworthy. They have to follow these rigorous processes. And I'm so happy that, uh, that our field with these guidelines is moving forward with uh, this kind of evolution. So I have to ask, um, sort of off topic, but if I were to visit you at McMaster and I, I went to the cafeteria for lunch, is it like a, a shared decision-making conversation surrounding all the different selections that are available each day, or, or what's, what's that look like? <laughs> First of all, we'd love to have you up, but second, yes, you know, of course, you could have, well, well, Dave, what exactly would you like on your burrito today? Uh, what are you feeling? And so on. What are your preferences today? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Uh, you, you've been so generous with your time. This was a great conversation. Do you have any last words before we depart? Thanks. Thanks again um, uh, for having me today. Thanks again to our supporters at uh, the college and the academy and, of course, the JTF. And big, big thanks to our entire team, uh, both in the evidence analogy group, but also our guideline panel, all our uh, multidisciplinary participants that have joined and experts 
and, and especially a big heartfelt thanks to all the patients and caregivers that gave so much time to, to help develop and ensure that their voice was heard in what and how they want to be treated. Well, thank you again. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.